Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome back to another episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Uh, I hope folks enjoyed the, the last episode with Vinay Gupta and Lucas Gonzalez. If you haven't gotten to listen, uh, go check it out. I think it's pretty insightful in today's um, turmoil and ad adaptation to the COVID-19 coronavirus um, in this episode of Planetary Re Regeneration, we uh, dig into what it takes to empower smallholder farmers all around the world and why that's important. Uh, a lot of um, theory and philosophy and semantics around movement building and the regenerative movement and ways that the regenerative movement is falling short of, of its... Uh, imperative to include humans in the definition of, of regeneration and not just be focused on ecological regeneration. Um, my guest was Lauren Cardelli, who is uh, the founder of A Growing Culture, which is a fantastic organization that works all over the world with uh, smallholder farmers, what in previous ages would be called peasant or, or campesino farmers, who are really the backbone of the global food system and, as Lauren points out, are some of the most innovative uh, people out there. And it's very near and dear to, to my heart and the mission of Regen Network and the mission of, the, of Terra Genesis, the um, group that I co-founded about 10 years ago, to empower smallholder farmers, uh, very similar to, to Lauren's mission with a growing culture, and, uh, and yet there was ample room for some really dynamic dialogue around um, big questions such as do, do extractive corporations like Monsanto have a seat at the table when we're talking about planetary regeneration and uh, social transformation and what the food system of the future looks like. Um, I will let you, the listener, draw your own judgments. Lauren and I had some, some difference of opinion and a lot of shared context and, and a lot of uh, shared reality and I respect his work greatly had a fantastic conversation I love these conversations in which there is actually something real to talk about that we're both passionate about so that seems to be commonly the case on this podcast but I had another great conversation with Lauren so super grateful for his time super grateful for all of you listeners um, I hope you're staying healthy I hope you're staying safe and uh, I hope you're out there if you're in the northern hemisphere uh, planting some trees and planting your gardens and, and getting ready to um, steward uh, steward this beautiful earth and, and grow an abundance of food and, and also whatever else you're working on. Uh, I hope people aren't going too stir-crazy um, with, you know, sort of being on, on lockdown uh, as, we, as we wait to see um, what's going on with the coronavirus. A little bit of a I want to take advantage of, of a moment to just sort of talk a little bit about the coronavirus. Um, in the last episode, there was some fascinating conversation. Obviously, we've all probably been thinking about it a lot. I'm, um, I'm cognizant of the fact that this may be the first real or one of the first real planetary 
crisis moments of our generation. And as such, there's a lot of uh, challenges and a lot of potential latent in this moment in time. But I was just on a phone call with my friends at VitWit, which is a fantastic um, um, software development company that we work with at Regen Network in India. And we were just noting, you know, just the commonality. Everyone is having this common experience all over the world. And we all have to just get back down to the basics of, you know, healthy food, clean water, clean air, and, you know, um, and our personal and community health. And uh, just, you know, just the, the, the radical awareness that we're all going through this experience together. Every single human on earth is... Um, dealing with a, a, this global pandemic moment and an understanding of, of what it means to sort of recalibrate society. Um, what are the most important things in a time of crisis like this? And uh, yeah, so um, just grateful for, grateful for what I hope is an opportunity for um, for humanity right now and also cognizant of you know the pain and and uh, suffering and, and death that this pandemic is bringing and uh just sending out uh, prayers for, for everybody um, at risk or not uh, of health for everyone so um have a great time listening to this podcast with lauren um he and i barely reference the coronavirus we really just dive into our shared passion around smallholder farmers and agroecology and you know, questions and critiques of the permaculture movement and the regenerative movement and what it's going to take for, you know, what the Western world and, and those of us who are privileged enough to be sort of sitting as, atop the societal pyramid of the moment of this of this present moment to take responsibility for structural um, inequities and, and oppression and, and the ways in which that's inherent in our food system. So um, I hope you have a, a great time listening to this uh, nuanced conversation and uh, look forward to hearing your, your comments and reflections. There's a lot of judgments here. <laughs> I, I knew you always had a point. All the pictures have like the ponytail, right? Ponytail and a mustache. This is like my first week sans mustache in uh, 15 years. And how are you feeling about it? I have mixed feelings. I'm, I'm a fan of the mustache for your persona, man. I feel like the mustache screams regenerative. I want to trust you. This one, I'm like, I don't know about this guy. Like, you know, like, I don't know if I could fully trust what he's saying with just the flavor saver. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's something about the mustache where I'm just like, all right, this guy's telling the truth. Let's 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 take some fucking notes here. Respect the mustache, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. this is good for like social distancing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, you know, I shaved it. My my in-laws are kind of vulnerable, and um, I foresaw that there's possibly situations in which, you know, mostly I'm just you know, doing the whole, like the full, you know, sort of like our family's isolated in our house and we go for walks and there's no, I'm not wearing a mask or anything, but I, I thought that there was a non-zero probability that I would need to wear a mask in different yeah. situations. 
and that I would prefer to not get stuck in a situation where I have to shave at that exact moment. And so yeah. I was just like, fuck it, I'm just gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear that, man. I, that makes a lot of sense. Um, maybe I should even think, I've never not had a beard. I don't even know what I look like in that one, so. It's, you know, it was a kind of good excuse. I get to see my face. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty clear that the mustache is just gonna grow back. Um, I think there's a good chance of that. Yeah, but, but for, you know, a brief moment in time, the sort of like Corona-inspired new world that's emerging out of the cocoon of the old, I thought I would just greet that moment with a, with a bare lip. I think we're all going to have to make some changes. So I think this is, I think you're setting a good standard, you know, setting the trend. So where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Massachusetts. Uh, my family and I live in Western Massachusetts in the, the nice little town of Great Barrington, Mass, which is. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. My sister used to live there. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I like it. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice little town. I mean, you don't get a place that's sort of as small as Great Barrington that has sort of like, it just feels like a, a couple of city blocks of like Williamsburg, Brooklyn got plopped down in the middle of the hills of of the Berkshires, so. Just a couple blocks though. Just two, just yeah. two blocks. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and, and I see you're, you're hoarding toilet paper over here, man. Yeah, 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 you see all, all of it back there, we're I set. See a, I see a random roll in the corner here. It's not, uh, you know, <laughs> that's some crazy I, stuff, man. I think there is a lot of readjustment and I keep looking for silver linings in this. And I, and I think, that I wanted to start this off by, by just saying that, like, I am so grateful and, res and, and have so much respect for the scientists, the truth tellers, and all the people that are, like, reporting on the news and everything about corona because we do need to be informed. But my hat's off to everybody who is continuing to do what they do best and, like, provide alternative narratives and not like alternative narratives to the truth, but like, you know, we need to learn. We need to listen. We need to hear other stories than just this, the stories of the virus. And, you know, we can't let that shut down. So there's so much amazing things going on in the world with smallholder farmers. And I think it's more than important for us to share these stories now because people can't just be listening to the things that are making them scared. Um, and so I think, you know, there's, it's, it's interesting to, to look through the lens of regenerative, um, which I think we should get into because I have a lot of, a lot of issues and, you know, um, feelings about even the term regenerative, but for now, like, awesome. let's uh, get into that. Yeah. But I think there's like, I think right now it's, it's great time because the, the ideas that were once impossible now seem so close that they, they seem almost practical, like, you know, Medicare for all, um, you know, everybody who doesn't have insurance is, they can't help it, but that's, an, that's, that's dangerous to everybody in the world. So we all, there needs to be a floor that's raised. Like we need to take care of each other in so many ways. And I think these things are starting to happen. Paid sick leave. I mean, workers' rights. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the, I hate the UBI. I think that's extremely dangerous, but right now it's helpful in a, in a time like this. Um, 
Say more about why you think UBI is dangerous. Because I think the, all right, so I don't, I haven't heard this, this perspective really fleshed out. So um, I'm not particularly a, I don't consider myself to be particularly a smart person. I like to, I, 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 I'm like a sponge. I listen and learn from the world and I, and I synthesize it down. Um, but my, my idea about UBI, my gut feeling tells me that real change is going to come from decentralization. Like when you have massive inequality and you have a food system, which is basically the foundation of all social organizing and humanity, which is extremely centralized, right? The, um, no solution is going to come from increased consumerism. And, and so what I see UBI as, and what from my, my limited point of view is that the people that are backing UBI are the technocrats and the plutocrats, because as industrialization happens and as humans get more objectified and our value webs and, and, and supply chains get, um, get centralized, what happens is we are merely consumers. And so getting us to be consumers, 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 so that the powers that be can still control the means of production and livelihood, but then this alternative side of, of the coin, which is the previous working class, which is now just paid to consume, I don't think that's gonna create any systemic change. Um, I do believe in social safety nets strongly, and I believe in free education. I believe in, um, you know, support for uh, healthcare and shelter and right to food. And I think all those things should be have safety nets attached to them. But I don't believe in cash outs directly for the purpose of consumerism and to get people out of the. Um, to get people out of the workforce and have them be all right with that. You know, I think that is, that's, that's marginalization and that's, and, it, and it's pushing us away from areas of where we should have democratization and collective control. So, I mean, the alternative, I mean, there's, there's multiple dimensions of this conversation that you just brought up and I sort of want to go in all of all directions, not necessarily at once though, but <laughs> So we just pick one at a time. So, so my first question is, you used a lot of terminology that I would associate essentially loosely with Marxism. Would you consider yourself to be a Marxist? Not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, my family, uh, my, 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 gra my grandfather on my father's side was, was a socialist and fled Spain and, and was brought here by uh, a good friend of him, Diego Rivera, and they started a socialist party and they were, so they were organizers in the early 1900s. Um, and so that, that kind of runs in my, in my blood. And um, I was kind of fed a lot of those concepts from a very young age. Mm -hmm. I would find myself to be, if we were looking at the Spanish civil war, I would have been on the anarchist side. Um, mm -hmm even though I don't think that model worked there. I think the model that's currently working in Rojava is, is incredible. And um, my political science teacher uh, was a student uh, of Murray Bookchin. 
So I, I find myself to be much more an anarchist and, and believe in communalism and collective power. And so um, I'm really scared about the objectification of people. And sure, Marx was, was worried about that too. But when you have, um, I don't think Marxism does anything to account for um, the natural carrying capacity of the planet. Um, mm -hmm. Um, and that's capitalism and Marxism's fall. They're both, whether it's whether it's in the hands of, of public or private doesn't change anything. It's still consume, 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 consume. Mm -hmm. So you're like more like anarcho-municipalism a la Murray Bookchin. I'm still a closet, closeted anarchist and I didn't even want to use that term because I think that's um, the most misunderstood word. Um, yeah, everybody, everybody's like, oh my God you know, like mask wearing people throwing Molotov cocktails or something. Well, yeah. I, think, I think even when you read like publications like The Guardian and The New York Times, it's like they, and this is semantic imperialism at the very, at the very best, right? So what, what they use is they've been able to hijack the word anarchy and turn it into um, entropy. So it's like, instead of mm -hmm. saying like, streets were chaotic or the streets were in chaos and where they could be saying, you know, the street, you know, entropy was taking over. They say it's total anarchy. And, and so it's just like people are reading this over and over again. This is what we're taught because whether we're, we're socialist, communist or, or uh, public or capitalist or whatever, the government is still necessary. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so, I also think the government is necessary in, in an anarchist system, but I think there's just a lot more direct democratic control and collective problem solving, and you're absent from the hierarchies, right, that, that plague us today. So um, I don't in total equality. I, I believe in, in, in direct action and, and communalism. And so people don't understand that an anarchist government, especially in this, uh, you know, deeper social ecology model, what we're having is highly they're actually very regulated they're very highly organized and they have to be organized to be participatory and, and collaborative um so it's just about the sake of organizing for what you know yeah i mean i oftentimes there's i um i agree by and large with your analysis of i mean i mean i think anarch anarch anarchism has been used as a placeholder for entropy or chaos for a long time. I don't think that's a new piece. Um, and, and I think early, some of the early anarchists actually fed that, like there's a historical reason why, you know, that's true. Uh, my understanding at least of the history of, um, certain sort of branches of the anarchist family is they were re they really were sort of like fuck everything the best thing we can do is tear it all down right now I mean I don't think they they were I don't think they were thinking that they weren't conceptually making the case at all philosophically that there didn't need to be structures and like what you said around a fully functioning anarchy like anarcho-syndicalism or whatever it might be, is it's super organized. It's act, you have to be really, like it demands an enormous amount of participation from every member in order to achieve 
sort of like efficient, responsive functioning of society. So it's Absolutely. not it's not like an absence of structure. It's sort of like pushing structure down to the lowest common denominator possible um, in decision making and whatnot, sort of subsidiarity or whatever the the concept is. But we also have to acknowledge that you know, like Russian anarchists and and European anarchists and American anarchists were like there was a wing of them who were not all of them. There were wings of them who were the same is true of communists and everybody. But there's like I think there's a reason why it got like hammered into the like collective psyche and became a placeholder because people were running around throwing bombs <laughs> and yeah that was the right thing to do at the time I, I like who am i to judge shit's been bad for a while so like clearly they they really you know those people thought that they had an ethical imperative to you know commit terrorism essentially in the name of you know yeah. tearing down structures of oppression and so and that is true it's not like that was just made up right that is something that happened. i think that's that i think that goes to something complex which i hope we we can definitely touch on in this conversation of and when, when um especially when we talk about theorists such as like freire or or fanon um so i think that's really important but i think for the anarchist perspective we need to recognize that any kind of system change was going to go through a process of scarcity and and the theorists understood that a process of scarcity that would shift from this capitalist model to this collaborative model um was necessary to create the solution it's like out of crisis comes solution right and that's what we're all on our side of the coin is like looking at like oh my god is coronavirus actually going to create the kind of society that we want are we going to be relocalized? Are we going to get decentralized? Are we going to take care of each other? We're, we're seeing this, this, this potential because of the chaos, right? Um, and it's because it's affecting rich and poor. It's not affecting them the same, but it's affecting everybody on a global scale. So there's a better chance. It's not like an isolated, you know, earthquake or hurricane or tsunami or something that just affects one community. This has the potential to actually create a society that's more collaborative and takes care of each other. But I think through anarchist models, we understood that as long as power is in B, you would never be able to implement a non-hierarchical model as long as people are in power. And so there has to be that destruction of the old system and then give birth. And that's why like Bookchin wrote post-scarcity anarchy, because they understood that there was going to be a transition and that transition wasn't supposed to be beautiful. It couldn't be beautiful. I mean, it's, it's like, it's bullshit to even, to think that it's gonna be an easy process, you know? And look at like the anarchist model that we're all leaning to right now as, as a reference point is where? It's in fucking Syria. It's like out of the hotbed of the most religious fundamentalism, the most extreme patriarchy, the most like, you know, refugee crisis in our modern history, gave birth to a system not of xenophobia and fascism, which we're getting all over the West, but of inclusivity and gender progressiveness and environmental sustainability. I mean, this is birthed that anarchist model, which is now we're all looking to because it's over 3 million people large actually functioning as a society and the most effective military against ISIS. I mean, they've been able to succeed in many ways, you know, and so, but, it was that crisis that gave birth to it. And so we all know that through system change is gonna have that. So I would say when you are talking about 
anarchism being chaos and the kind of narrative that people were perpetuating, I think we have to be sensitive to that because, you know, you look at Goodman, you know, um, you, you look at these people and they weren't fans of war, you know, they weren't fans of, of violence, but they also understood that a system that oppresses, a system that oppresses, and this is straight out of Wretched of the Earth, a system that oppresses is already exhibiting violence. And when you take violence against a system that oppresses, the oppressed retaliating are not performing the act of violence. The system that oppresses them is performing the act of violence. Well, they're both. They're both performing an act of violence. Yeah, but I think you can't reduce the revolt because that revolt is liberating. That's self-expressionism. And that's the, that's the quest for freedom. You know, you look at the African context when they fought off the colonialists and they took arms to fight off the colonialists. Were they... And were they starting the, the act of violence? No. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I do think getting into the game of a engineering crisis, um, had a little internet blip there. Hopefully I'm back. Getting into the game of a engineering crisis, participating in engineering crisis. I mean, I, I completely understand how it sort of like logically makes sense. Um, but I think that there's ways in which it's problematic as a theory of change. And I also think there's ways in which it's problematic to assume that you can like wrest power from the powerful without becoming the powerful. And that, those two, that, that's my analysis, like yeah. uh, uh, of, of how the world works essentially. So if you, A, if you go about trying to engineer a crisis, you know, it, it starts to look an awful lot like shock doctrine, you know, disaster capitalism works in some way. And then, and then if you add a layer of, sort of like a struggle to wrest power that you, you pretend is gonna flatten hierarchies or change oppression, I, I think historically what we see is that you just replace the oppressor. Well, that's, that's Freyarian right there, right? That's, that's purely flipping the poles. And we see this, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Puerto Rican Jew and I see this in, in the Jewish side of, of my faith, right? Um, and, and I struggle with that, which is, um, flipping the poles from being the oppressed to the oppressor, you know? And, and so these yeah. challenges yeah, totally. are very common, but that's why anarchism is so important because when you implement a struggle for communalism and for non-hierarchy at the very basis, you're implementing these safeguards like what's happened in Rojava or um, in the Zapatista, you know, communities. I mean, so nothing is perfect and and the world is is a laboratory and it, and it's up to us to meet these challenges and constantly evolve and perfect and grow right but what i will say is we haven't seen many examples of anarchist movements that were 
successful to overthrow a oppressive system and then were able to be implemented without being hijacked. I think what we saw was across the world, several Marxist movements and revolutions that were successful, but then the power got isolated into a very individual. So when we think of revolution, we're really, when we look to like, look at examples to reference, it's Marxist examples or it's the French revolution. Have you, uh, have you gotten to listen to the Revolutions podcast at all? No. Highly recommended. I mean, yeah. uh, by Tom Duncan. Um, yeah, he goes through in pretty high degree of detail every revolution from the English Revolution, which is the first one that kicks off, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a restoration after the English Revolution, but the English did, you know, revolt and... Uh, take over <laughs> the round hats succeeded all of our Cromwell took power they created a parliament they kicked the king out etc and then there was a restoration so every every revolution from that point rolling through and then he's ending with the Russian revolution right now he's actually in the middle of it it's very interesting I, I find because when you start to kind of like see the patterns of all of these political revolutions I mean again my takeaway is There is, I'm not interested, I am personally not interested in overthrowing power as a method of transformation. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not interested in, in violence and I'm not interested in, in necessarily overthrow, but I'm interested in decentralization. And right. So well, I, I, this is a different, so, so there's a whole new, I think, my, my thinking is there's a maturation, I hope, of the movement, the movements, the, the impulse, as you said eloquently mm -hmm. towards freedom, to understand that freedom comes with responsibility. So it's less important that we sort of like isolate, overthrow, or hold accountable those who are perpetuating a system of oppression. And it's more important that, that communities and individuals and supportive communities create as much sovereignty and as as much high functioning participatory governance and as much sustainable or regenerative interaction with their greater ecosystem as possible and just keep progressing that and keep building capacity and capability in that and just keep doing it because as i said like i don't think we have to engineer shock and so if you focus on building community capacity and individual capacity as the work the shocks will come and the communities will then have the ability to respond and just sort of like, it's just how an ecosystem grows through succession. You, you know, you, if you go whack the forest down, you know, you, you end up with a degraded for version in a, in a non-brittle environment. You end up with a degraded version of the same forest growing back up. Where if you want to actually transform the composition of a forest, you know, you, you, you yeah, you just have to take a different, it's like low, you know, in my mind, at least the theory for political change tracks very beautifully with low grading forest management style, <laughs> you know, where you, you, you slowly are upgrading the diversity and the resilience and the health and of the, of the ecosystem there. And that that is the, at least in my mind, that's the, that's the, it's hard, non-sexy work. It's like, it's not a, you can't like charge over the fucking barricades and 
be, you know, like a, a hero. It's just capacity, it's slow community building work that actually well, creates transformation because that's what gets people prepared for shock. That's what, that's what means that communities and individuals can step up and be the ones who are provisioning, you know, um, food, fuel, and fiber for themselves and um, having local resilient supply systems and, and solid healthcare responses, et cetera. Sure, but you're right that the shocks are going to come naturally, but, and, and I don't think you need to engineer the shocks, but I do think that part of that perspective is also a privileged perspective. <laughs> That we yeah, have. that's right. I'm privileged. I don't make yeah. no bones about it. And I don't, but, but it is a true perspective. So privileged no, it, or not. Every perspective true. is true. You know what I mean? Like if it's your perspective, it's, it's your perspective, you know, and, and it's. Well, and, I don't think I wouldn't go that far. Not yeah. every, not every perspective is true. Or that well, is to say you can, you can rate truth. Like every perspective has truth. Some perspective has more truth than others. Sure. You're, I mean, absolutely, this isn't like a, um, this isn't like a half-truth kind of situation, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, like, what's true to you is true to you, and, and so we have to, to own our feelings, and we have to, and, and, and share our perspectives more, um, and that's what I, what I simply meant by that, but I do feel that, um, people that have the ability to take the time in a system are the people that are also not the most oppressed within that system. And, and the challenge comes from we live in a world right now where over a billion people go to bed hungry. Um, we have a population of around 7 billion. We produce enough food for over 10 billion. So we basically produce food for one and a half times our population, yet one seventh of our population still goes to bed hungry. 800 million go to bed really hungry, <laughs> you know? And what's worse is the majority of those are the ones who are actually producing our food, yep. um, smallholder farmers. And when we look into that system, this to me is kind of like the glazing over of the social dire that we're in, of the exploitive nature that we're in, that happens actually in the regenerative agricultural movement in some ways, um, or the westernization of the food movement. And I'm sure we're gonna disagree on this, so I'm kind of um, choosing my words um, carefully, but I'm also kind of excited. Um, maybe we'll disagree, maybe we won't. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but what happens is that, that for a, a large majority of this world, the burden of climate change is on them disproportionately to others. The burden of inequality is on them disproportionately high to others. Oppression and injustice and exploitation, right? We live in a world where in Africa, produces 80% of the world's chocolate, but gets less than 2% of the $100 billion revenue. This is post-colonialism. For every dollar of aid that goes into, the, into Africa, I'm not talking about Africa as a country, I'm talking about as a continent here. I mean, I know that's very complex and nuanced for each country's sake, but as a whole, for every dollar of aid that goes into Africa, $24 is taken out. This mm -hmm. is a post-colonial world. So when we talk about 
working with the system to be, to casually generate change because we are beneficiaries of an unjust system. We are remaining at best neutral to injustice, which you could argue whether neutrality even exists. Yeah, that, I, so I do disagree with what you're saying, I think. I, I don't disagree with the, <clears throat> the facts, nor do I disagree with the like, impulse or ethical imperative to essentially take a side and support systemic transformation. Um, I think that's all right on. I, I, I think though there's a conflation that takes place between mm-hmm. the, the urgency and reality of the ethical imperative and the superimposition of that into conversations that are essential to happen in order for the, the, the transformation to, like, to mature or change the currently dominant economic power nexus in order to like loosen that and transform it enough so that the the shift can happen there's a process there's like a developmental process of stages that have to go through and when you start every conversation about food fuel fiber soil transforming american farmers Mm -hmm. with like social justice warrior stuff it actually turns into a goat rodeo. And what I mean by goat rodeos is a new concept that I'm really excited about. Um, it was recently introduced to it. A goat rodeo is, is when there are different methods and different goals trying to coordinate at the same time. And you can't actually achieve anything in those circumstances. It's an impossible place to do work. You have to have you can, if you have shared goals and different methods, you can coordinate and you can cooperate. If you have, you know, um, different goals and the same methods, you can figure out ways to, to, to cooperate. And if you have the same goals and the same methods, you know, you can cooperate. But if you have completely different methods and completely different goals, and this is what I see happening and what frustrates me, you know, my heart is, I've spent eight years of my life working with smallholder farmers in Latin America, empowering cooperatives and essentially making like pouring, pouring resources in and not extracting, you know, um, profit in any, in any sort of way. I, so my heart's there. I mean, I, I identify that as a place that needs radical and swift transformation but i i at least in my mind the topology of like work to be done i think like it's it's like that can be true and we can have a conversation about regenerative agriculture with american farmers who who essentially are sort of like feudal lords over thousands of acres and all of the fucked upness and we can concentrate with them on learning about soil health and trans transforming their you know, practices and approach and trans- transforming the downstream supply to, to reflect healthy soil without jamming those conversations in space and time into the exact same one, which ends up in a goat rodeo. <laughs> yeah, 
No, I love that. I love that analogy. I'm getting a pen and paper here. So I take notes. Um, I love that analogy, and I actually agree um, with a lot of what you just said. And and I think that this is a collaborative movement. We have to for it to be a movement and not a trend or a brand. It has to be collaborative, right? Yeah. And and there have to be people focusing on 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 improving. Um, you know, the oceans and the ecology and the biodiversity and, and there's everything. And so it's not just the social justice lens, right? And it's not just the social justice warriors. But I, I also, I, I feel that we have to, I don't think we need to come out swinging with social justice because I think that always, that doesn't always work, you know? Um, but I do think we have to be careful of our privilege and to remove the human element from the discussion should be something that we shouldn't be doing. And so totally. I think when we have this kind of reductionism, which tends to focus on environmental lens within our food system, right? And so when you want to survey um, the the followers of, of regenerative or or organic or, you know, whatever. Like when we want to, to, to broad stroke and, and survey them, at that forefront is the biological practices of how to produce food, right? It's, the, it's at the forefront is the non-chemical, the non-pollution. And what is, is challenging to me is the well, shit- Just to pause for a second. I think I see exactly the character, the name of the character that you're, you know, you're identifying with the regenerative movement with, with that yeah, yeah. particular opinion. I would guess that you're, you know, you're holding like Tom Newmark in your brain as you like, you know, yeah. discuss the archetype of someone who's sort of like, I hear Tom time after time say, you know, the societal change comes second. The first thing we have to do is stabilize the climate. And if that, and he's said to me, like, if that, perpetuates a system of feudalism and oppression, I don't care. First things first, it's soil health and carbon sequestration. I think he would, if he, if he was to pop in right here, he would agree with that statement I just made. I've heard him say it yeah. several times. Well, I have nothing but respect for-, for Totally, for I love Tom. I, I guess I'm just wanting to discern, as you're noting, there's a movement. I don't think it's accurate that everyone- I'm not you, trying to say everyone and I'm, and I know, and and, and granted there's, an amazing amount of people that we both are friends with, you know, that, that, I, that are in the regenerative movement that we both think are doing heroic and admirable work and that we both admire tremendously. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, so, so I'm I don't, not just to be clear to all our listeners too, I'm not trying to call out Tom. He's, he's an amazing, loving guy and he happens to have an opinion that like ecology comes first right now because it's like a crisis. And I sort of, like respectfully disagree. I, I'm guessing I'm going to fall more on the side of the fence that Lauren is about to articulate around like how that actually has to happen to work well. But I don't know. I haven't, I haven't listened to what you're saying yet. So. Yeah. Um, you know, this is something that has been really challenging to me because I mean, we, I don't want a broad stroke, right? So it, it's hard for me because how, it, the challenge is to resist kind of, um, broad stroking uh, society, 
But when you go to conference after conference, right? We've all been to those same conferences. <laughs> when you read um, blog after blog that are not the academic outliers that we both like <laughs> extremely enjoy, but the mainstream kind of uses of, of, these, of these terms. Um, yeah. What happens is the social lens is not in the equation. And if it is, it's an afterthought. And that's all I'm trying to say is like, what happens is there's, there's people that are interested in the brandification of regenerative. And in some ways, regenerative has been somewhat a brandification because when you look at the majority of the people that grow our food are smallholder farmers, right? The majority of the people that grow our food are probably not even white, right? And so when we have a perspective of the global South, when they come together and they discuss our food system and look at the movements to, to transform our food systems, they come up with terms like agroecology and food sovereignty. Mm -hmm. We know that from the Nyalini Declaration. We know that. We, you and I have both worked in these communities. That's, those are the terminology that they've used, right? And this is the communities that are also most exploited within our food system, right? Now, in the West, we like to develop new terminology rather than expressing solidarity with those communities. We've developed new terminology and then have pulled on it. I mean, permaculture in some ways, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but in some ways was a whitewashing and a hijacking of indigenous and smallholder practices around the world. It's great to compile this and put this together, but in some ways we have to address that reality of the truth. Um, and so what happens is agroecology and food sovereignty are both at the epicenter social movements. They're both social movements. Now what happens is I'm just saying let's for one second step back where our own biases and where our own um, hearts fall and let's look at like regenerative. There are people that want this to be a social movement, but to the most, do you think it centers on social movements like the way that the global South cons terms do? I think it's up. It's still up. To, it's still a debate. I think, honestly, <laughs> Who's I think winning that debate. Um, well, it's hard to know. I mean, you have like the regenerative organic certification uh, explicitly includes social. It, it explicitly does its best in a very ham handed way to, to embrace the social element of things through its demand to incorporate fair trade into that certification and therefore their sort of definition or approach to regenerative. And then, and then you have sort of other, and they're the farthest along in terms of like, if you're thinking about a supply chain and branding and other things, and, and in general, it has the most support amongst brands because they were, they were the early mover to, to like coalesce that. And then- but They adopted fair trades protocols, right? They, they adopted fair trades protocol. So Did it's like fair trade plus, organic plus, plus a set of sort of like essentially like more rigorous so like soil health. Because the, where they innovated was in soil health. They didn't innovate with the social demands. They adopted somebody else's. Totally. And that's the, and so if you were, so one, I would just like to point out like our definition, for instance, of regenerative cacao and, so, so there's like a couple things going on. One is, you know, I think I mostly agree, although I, I also would take exception to some of the things that you're saying, but like in our 
for about eight years, I've been working on trying to create a sort of regenerative cacao um, participatory guarantee system as a as a um, alternative to certificate top down certification that mm -hmm. as a protocol essentially engages with producers to create their own definition of, of regenerative, et cetera, Which that's, awesome. that's underway. It's had mixed results in terms of our ability to market it and fund it and other, but it's, it's still, it has legs. There's people buying it. There's shit happening. You know, um, at this stage, we're mostly focused though on the ecological, like on upgrading and innovating in ecological verification because the social, because the marketplace in the North, like innovating and trying to compete against fair trade is sort of like impossible. Whereas competing against organic is easy. If you're, if you want to think of it that way. So, I, I think that's a little bit of a cop out because I think, you know, they're both, you know, they very both labels and, and for, I, I think if you like, I think there's ways to improve on both. And I for, think, uh, no, I don't disagree, but I'm just saying like the, anyway, so I also think it's sort of like, which foot do you put forward in what market? It's less of a decision that I, I don't think, at least how I hold this, this is not a, you know, this is an emphasis question and not a, um, what do you do or not do? Because it's part of one irreconcilable whole. The people and the place and the ecosystem are all a whole. But that's my point, is that like, when we reduce the conversation to just carbon, which is being done by a lot of people, and I'm not saying all, Right. We all know people that it may or may not be. I just want to I just want to it depends because carbon as an indicator. Carbon is an indicator is it, like can be a representation of a whole. I mean, you do need another couple terms in the system in order to, to like meet the whole. But it's like it, if, the, if it's an invitation to sort of like, you know, engage and then define another sort of like indicator that that fits in a whole way, I think it's a good, it's like, I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm in agreement with you, but I just sort of like, I think the way, maybe it's a tactical disagreement. I want to be careful of the tacticalness of this because like Tom Newmark and those guys and kiss the ground, you know, they, they're, they're right. That carbon is extremely important. And, and, and I'm excited and happy that, People if I are was arguing, if I was talking with them, I'd be probably arguing your point. Yeah. That's all of my conversations with with all of them are all about. You know, I mean, you may have seen our, you know, like Terragenesis's, you know, definition of regenerative agriculture, in which we explicitly talk about social things, and we explicitly say this shouldn't be defined, and we explicitly say this is a place-based conversation, yeah. and we did that. Ex we did that strategically to try to throw a like plant a flag so that we weren't getting into this carbon maximalism reductionism oh, I think nonsense. That, I think I think that was smart but I also think it in some ways it it wasn't as successful as we both wished it I totally it was just you know, like people just blew right over it of course sure. and so I'm gonna I'm gonna step back before we dive deep into this because we do agree more than we disagree but I'm gonna step back and say what I spend a lot of my time on is wondering 
why we constantly remove the social element from our food system. When the Neolithic revolution was the greatest change to social organizing and to the way we live than anything else in the history of the world. Like that created social stratification, that created wealth and private property, and it created classism, it created the peasant and the elite class, it created the military, it created how to manage surplus and birth politics, it created monogamy, it created all these things that we exist within came from 10,000 years ago. And this is amazing to me because agriculture is the most beautiful being because it's a double-edged sword. It could be the ultimate tool of extraction, pollution, and consolidation of control, or it could be a tool of regeneration and healing, but it could only be a tool of regeneration if it's mutually regenerative. And that's where I refuse to use the term regeneration anymore. In any of a growing culture's language, we always use the term mutual regenerative because we want to force awesome. people to recognize that's our intervention. Your intervention was different. You guys are, are brilliant and, and have a team like, like, I was able to just say, we're just using this term because we need to, to, to shift people's point of view, to start to look at the human element. And so what I sit and- That's great. I, I love that term. I mean, I think, and I think that that's right on, is that regeneration has to consider the whole and, and people and their place and their farms and the economy that manifests out of that are all- they're all irreducible. They're, yes. Well, but landless by what, like by private property, as you said. And I just want to say, though, I, I sort of feel like, so if we look at the historical context or prehistorical context, and we say, I think rightfully, that the Neolithic Revolution catalyzed an enormous evolution of society that includes a lot of attributes that we can see are maladaptive and unhealthy for mm -hmm. for individuals yeah. and the earth and societies at every nested layer <laughs> it's just there's a lot of not good going on i wonder you know can we fight can you fight the avalanche or like what is the intervention point upstream that creates a transformation that is of the order of magnitude that the Neolithic revolution was, and how do you harness that to evolve, to re-evolve society, to regenerate society so that it transforms? And I don't think, like, not, it's not gonna be utopian. We'll create the problems of the future when we do this, but, um, but we need to change the problems, essentially. We need, the, we need to have different problems. Um, yeah. What is that intervention point? Because can we just fight it? It's, a, it's like trying to fight, trying to swim upstream, you know? But how do you change the course of the river? I think for me, the intervention point, I mean, this starts from the very basis of our conversation today was, is inclusivity. Like, I think for me to think that I have the solution is absolutely absurd because I don't have the solution and you don't have the solution. But together as a unit, we can cultivate that solution. And, and so it's about bringing the people together. Right now, the people that produce our food don't even have a seat at the table. Like, and this is, this is the, the dilemma and challenge that we're in, and we're not even recognizing it as um, 
disadvantageous to us. We just think of it as disadvantageous to them. And, and we shouldn't be asking for charity. This, this is parody. You know, and this is, this is it's, it's, and so we need to create an inclusive society to bring everybody from the middlemen to the brokers, to the producers, to the pastoralists. We need to come together as a society and create a food system that works for all. But we won't do that by focusing just on the environmental, like, um, factors of a food system, which is what we do in the West. And so what the Maybe, question- I, mean, I, I agree with everything you say up until that point. I actually, I have direct experience that you can bring together all of those stakeholders to do a participatory redesign of mm -hmm. everything, of everything about the whole system through an invitation that is, is environmentally centric. Because, because that's the commonality. That's the thing that everyone has in common. It isn't, it isn't just isolating it and saying it's the only important thing. But everybody, but it is sort of like the objective reality of an intersubjective conversation. The, the, the land health and the, the common ecosystems that we all depend on mm -hmm. is our objective anchor. And so therefore, from my perspective, I agree with everything you're saying. I would just say, I think it is exactly, that's, I mean, that's our our hook and our perception and our work at region network for instance is is to just say for me to, i can it's like take for granted that there has to be participatory design of all stakeholders in any agreement that's going to take place around earth you know ecosystems and land but the objective reality that everybody shares is environmental is also society and humanity but that's another layer. It's like, it's like we, get into we get into arguments about that, where, whereas you can anchor, you can, you can start people out commoning. You can start people out with mutualism. You can start people at a, at a beautiful foundation of reciprocity if you get everybody to ground into the sort of like geological, ecological, environmental reality that we all depend on. And then you can bring that up layers into the rest of the system. If you start at the, if you start at the other place, you start adversarial and you Do you start... think, do you think, um, do you think the peasants of the world would agree with that? Do you think the indigenous and, and the landless, when you want to go talk to MST in Brazil or LVC around the world, do you think they would agree with that? Some of them would and some of them wouldn't. I think it's important to recognize, like, it's like Black Lives Matters. It's like Black Lives Matters wasn't a movement saying that all lives don't matter. It was a movement saying that we need to focus on this injustice that's happening to black people. And so like- And, and look at the division and, and I mean, with all respect, look at the divisiveness and the, you know, like look at how Black Lives Matter was used to, to buy powers that wanted to create division. Look at how it was used as a vehicle to divide and conquer. You know, it's, this is, this is- I'm just saying, I'm just saying like it's, it is, it's like what our intentions are um, and then the tactics that we use, you know, to, to I think there's a fear, there's a fear that if you start with earth, that you'll just forget about 
society and it will be used as sort of like this veil for eco-fascism or something. And I don't like, I, I just don't, you know, some, some indigenous people would agree with me and some wouldn't, right? But that's would Tom immaterial. Would agree with you? Tom, Tom would agree that you should start with the, with. And you said you with didn't agree with the reality. No, I didn't agree with, he, he was saying as long as, he was saying ends justify the means. I'm talking about a place to start in a living framework of how to orient participatory conversation around regeneration. I'm not talking about the ends justifying the means, just to discern between them. I'm talking about that when you have Trumpism spreading around the world, what this is is the hijacking of populism. And there's a healthy form of populism that exists that the left haven't, hasn't learned how to engage and build upon. And it's that collective we, it's that, that, that African term Ubuntu, I am because we are, right? There's that term which, which we're trying to use now in AGC, which is if you don't hunger for food, you should hunger for justice. I mean, there's, 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 there's that natural hungering that we all need to do to change this world. And like, this is, it's, it's, it's not a black and white, it's not an either or, but it, the dialogue needs to be at the forefront, needs to be holistic. And there needs to be this social element there with which is just as important as the carbon element. And, and this is what is scary to me is that, I'll ask you a question, in the West, why do you think we're so scared of the social element? Why do you think the social lens is never used to look at our food system? Well, I mean, I think there's probably a couple different ways that could be answered. Um, probably the most historically accurate is that in, in the West is a big, the West is a big place, but by and large, the, the truth of the matter is that our agricultural reality is deeply entwined with slavery and colonialism and exploitation and is, has been the historical driver of, in quotes, wealth and people who have power and privilege would prefer to A, be blind and not have to think about it, and B, if they do think about it, they'd like to preserve it, preserve the status quo because they're on top. And, you know, society and reality are seen as a struggle, a class struggle. And if you're winning the class struggle, you know, and that's the reality that you live in, then you're going to do your best to keep winning at it. Mm-hmm. That would be my answer to that question. So I'm, I'm agreeing with you. And I, and I agree that maybe the most effective way to make change is to not focus on the social ends. And I'm going to tell you that marketing agencies know this and kiss the ground and, you know, the, the other regenerative folks that are pushing for the brand that aren't focusing on the, on the social, they know that. Because I think when you use a social lens to look at our food system, it forces you to hold up a mirror. And people don't want that. They want to be blind. Like, you know, the affluent 
white foodies can get all behind this kind of movement, but they, they're scared to look at their own complacency within a system of privilege. And when we need system change, there has to be an awakening to this, to privilege. But, and, to what I'm, and what I'm trying to say, Lauren, is that the pathway to awakening in my personal experience mm -hmm. is one in which if you're forced to look in the mirror, it, it, it creates a whole react, reactivity and a whole defensiveness that yeah. frankly just gets in the way. And it's, you can't force people. You have to create the circumstances where they choose to reflect and they feel safe enough to reflect around these really challenging things. And when we try to like cram it down people's throats, it's another form. It's like, it is the power struggle. It's the struggle. Of course, you, but why do you feel this cramp? Like, it's like, I'm not talking about cramming. I'm talking about like, there's- But a, other people are, but other people are, that's the impulse. If you've been oppressed for so long, you get into that situation, you're gonna just try to cram it down the, that asshole, white, richy fucker's throat. And that's what happens. And if you create circumstances that that is the polarity and the dynamic, well, we're it's feeding like, into that with this conversation it's, it's, of things that explode. Dreams. I think. I think the, the. I think the true intervention has to be an understanding of both. I think it's a social and the ecological lens that we. I'm not use. arguing with that. And, and I don't think that has to be cramming. I don't think that has to be militant. But I think that we need to have people understand. There are already people hurting. There are already people oppressed. And so, like, what? It's like to think that people can't handle a, a, a social lens or to handle the thing. Sure, we have to go to therapy. <laughs> we have to struggle with white guilt or, or whatnot, but, but these are small prices to pay to real systemic change. And I'm just so scared. And what, what reminds me all the time is this, this story about Cesar Chavez. His, um, I think it's his birthday is coming up. Um, but Cesar Chavez said, he was being, being followed by, by a New York Times, Times reporter, sent, sent this, uh, this reporter there for multiple days on trail, Cesar Chavez, and he went to rally, to rally, to rally, working with the farm workers. And the reporter, after a few days, said, Cesar, this is unbelievable. How do you explain that here and respect that these farm workers have for you? And do you know what he responded? He laughed, and he said, the feeling is mutual. Like, it's like, an outsider is like, how do you... How do all these people love you so much? It's like, because he loves them. And the food movement in general, and I, like, I know we don't want to generalize, but we need to bring that element back. There needs to be something between food tank and, you know, La Via Campesina. There needs to be a gateway drug to get people there. And you're not going to get the gateway by ignoring all the social element. I'm not talking like if you want to, you know, talk about militant and anti-neoliberalism, get on the LVC, get, you know, newsletters like, you know, but that's not for everybody. We need to get people to understand this. And there's no way to get them to understand these issues without recognizing that Africa subsidizes everything. <laughs> Like we're our charity, our aid to them is nothing. It's distraction for the subsidization of the products that we consume. This is colonialism that exists in the world today and that the peasant class is existent. It's 40% of the world's population. That peasant class is being oppressed. So yeah, we can take time to, to learn and to listen and to engage, but we can't be ignorant 
to the reality of the situation and we need to move there. And so it's not about this violent social justice warrior. And I think that even term should not be used because it's so like demeaning to people that actually are agreeing with you that the ends don't justify the means and that you have to. Well, I guess I'm trying to hold, I mean, in a, in a similar way, I, I, I agree with all of the, the, the points you're making. And what I'm trying to invite is a consideration about how to actually produce that transformation. Yeah, like, I, I hear that. And, and, and what I'm saying is I don't think we produce that transformation by arguing. We don't. We don't and, produce and, that. And we don't, we don't like the, the moments in my experience in the food movement is that there's, there's these moments of opportunity that get blown when the anger comes first. And like there's, I, I know that this is a shitty this is a shitty pill to swallow, but if we can't, if those of us who, who recognize this reality can't like manage ourselves to be strategic in those moments and instead of being angry, whether it's a representative of La Via Campesina or whoever it is in that, that, that moment, there has to be like a, an, an invitation for people to see themselves. And every time a certain number of people will, will take the invitation. But if there's a demand for people to see themselves, we'll keep getting this polarization and we'll keep being in a fight with each other and we won't ever get there. You're absolutely right. I mean, we, we but that, that line that you're talking about, that's woven around this, like, like people like you and I are, are spending our days trying to find that because we know it's not all the way at the, reductionist point of view of just carbon or it's not at the reductionist point of view of just you know social justice and human rights it's 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 somewhere in between and so like we're trying to find that pathway to get people there and your intervention of writing that article because you were scared you're saying look at this movement it's taking off in a direction that's not comfortable to me that's not agreeing and i want to protect ourselves and our brand and i want to push people to start to look at this from another angle and not follow into a trend or a brand of regeneration, but actually a popular movement. And to create a popular movement, we need to be somewhat populist. And the food movement is really bad at being populist. And you know that by, we, we talked about American farmers. American farmers aren't fans of the food movement, quote unquote. <laughs> like, no. And that's a reason, because it's so void of the social lens. We need well, to find well, that. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, American context is complicated. I mean, but yes, I mean, I, I, think, I think American farmers would by and large be more alienated. There's like this weird thing that happens, you know, not to fall into too many tropes and whatnot, but, but there's this weird magnetism and occlusion, I think, of, of reality that takes place. Like uh, American farmers, by and large, I mean, there's a lot of exceptions to this, but by and large, they live in, in you know, in quotes, the heartland, although, of course, there's farmers everywhere. And by and large, the bulk of the food that's being produced is, is being produced by people who would consider themselves to be socially conservative, you know, and by and large, they're, you know, in quotes, white people, or that is to say, they're the, the, the descendants of European immigrants, um, usually post, you know, usually like they're usually like German and Swedish and whatever. So they came after the big sweep of colonization so they don't identify with 
the sort of like the reality of genocide that they're that they've built their livelihoods on and part of that is like willful blindness and part of that is just like ignorance like when they're when their granddad came it was already like they were already giving out sections or whatever it wasn't you know they weren't in a fight about it so that so those people have a cultural like a conservative and, and that culture has its own beauty. And, and the challenge is the food movement, I think that to be specific, the food movement's lack of ability to integrate with farmers is that the food movement tends to be, it tends to have epicenters around New York City and San Francisco, and it tends to be, you know, driven by people who don't have any relationship fundamentally with farming necessarily. And it's sort of more of the culinary side of things, you know, and there's like a cultural, it's, it's like, unfortunately in, in the United States, and it's like a different thing in the rest of the world, but in the United States, there's like this, you know, it's like, we're playing out this stupid trope around blue states and red states and coastal elites and flyover country. And that's what farmers are pissed about in the U S they don't, they don't want more, you know, like via campesina in the discourse, like your average farmer from Iowa, they want less because. Uh, I mean, I, I think, I think what, I think we have to be careful about that because I think what, what, what via campesina means to an American farmer is very different than what via campesina means to, um, you know, a Brazilian farmer or to the landless MST movement or whatnot. So, I think, but there are chapters and Family Farm Coalition in the United States is, you know, is an LVC chapter. And so I think there is a lot more in common. And what's interesting to me is when we talk about like having a language that's divisive and that's exclusive, I think when we talk about anti-industrial ag, when we talk about um, anti-pollution and chemicals used in agriculture, what happens is that language is not maybe inclusive, I mean, not exclusive to the people that we've been talking about, but to rural farmers, it's exclusive. And like, I think when we look at the person in, under Tyson contract growing poultry in, in a factory farm in Arkansas, and we, you know, vilify that person, right? Which the food movement would, that's exclusive. And, and that's what happens, that's what causes the American farmers to hunker down into their beliefs because it's a protectionism, right? And so what I'm going to challenge you on is that if you look at an argument framed around decentralization and worker rights and justice, you would look at that farmer in Arkansas and want to protect him from the abusive and exploitive contract that Tyson is allowed to put him under. And that becomes then inclusive of change. Like, and so I think it's like, I think you have to look at this from two sides. And so I'm not saying about the social justice in a way which just is racial justice or West versus East or global North versus the global South. I'm talking about decentralization framework and looking at the democratization of our food system where we focus on producer rights. I don't think that's exclusive. I think that's inclusive. And I think farmers and people in Brooklyn and Bushwick and Oakland will get behind that too. And I think it's up to us to create that narrative and to shape that. And that is healthy populism. The populist movement that started in this country was a black farmer cooperatives in the South that led that movement. 
Like, so I think we have to take a step back and realize our language is pushing away the people that we purport to serve. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about the, the opportunity to frame. I mean, I oftentimes wonder about um, how to really anchor the conversation for the benefit of the individuals who find their vocation being farming and being disciplined about that. I think that that's an important piece. And, and I think whether or not you're, I mean, I think that that is a principle kind of cuts through the conversation. I mean, there's sort of socioeconomic benefit and there's also like soil health benefit. So that in, as a principle, I think is just an important piece to keep up front. Mm -hmm whether or not we're talking about soil health and then framing it as an ability for people to get off of, you know, extractive relationships for chem from chemical companies and have more financial freedom through their soil health or whether we're talking about, you know, an increase of um, equity and sort of uh, trade power through intervening in extractive exploitative relationships that are allowed to exist, you know, between Tyson and their, you know, chicken growers, or, or frankly, it's everywhere. That's that. And that's that, the unifier. It's the farmer in Ethiopia growing coffee that hasn't got paid for two years and the Arkansas farmer under contract with Tyson. They are in the same struggle and we need to frame that together. I, I mean, I agree, and that turns it into a social movement, and I agree that that's important, and, you know, and I think we should recognize that the, that whether or not it was the communists or the capitalists, as you said, whether or not it was whoever, historically, there are very few, if any, good examples of sort of agrarian equality in civilization. There's never been, and I think this is like, it's like, I'm not romanticizing the past. Like, you know, injustice was baked into the bedrock of agriculture. Agriculture baked the injustice into the bedrock of society. Like, That's right. And so, so if, you know, and therefore, if you're talking about transforming, in my mind, this is where maybe we have a difference of strategy. In my mind, if what you're talking about, which we agree, is the complete transformation of society. Because, we, because if agriculture and society are intrinsically linked, and from the very beginning, 50,000 years ago or whatever, th there was, th there's oppression and agriculture go hand in hand somehow, which I think there are, you know, we should get into a deeper conversation there. But I, anyway, let's just take that as an assumption. I think there, there's actually some work to do that may make may make more hope available there. But say that that's true, then what we're talking about is a complete regeneration, redefinition, ev evolution of the relationship between humans and earth and humans. We're talking about other. food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is just an outcome of this. You know, uh, in, and this is where the, our, my attempt to actually frame this out 
is, is that paper called the levels of regenerative agriculture in which we're trying to step up and talk about and like the, the, the highest level that you can possibly kind of imagine, it is a total transformation of the relationships, right? Between farmer and farmer and farmer and consumer and farmer and earth and farmer and society. And if, you, if we're asking how we get there, you know, I, I, I hear that you're painting a picture, which I resonate with, around sort of societal, the societal struggle to overcome oppression that is like the civil rights movement in essence, which is like organize people and create political movement and wrest control out of the hands of people who are using it to, to sort of like maintain their hegemony and, and um, privilege. Yeah, and, I don't think that's polarizing at all. Well, but somebody's getting the power wrested from them. But, and but so, everybody is, no matter what change is gonna come, this is gonna happen, right? People are gonna be threatened. And I think when you talk about the injustice in the way that I was just framing it about that's inclusive to the Arkansas farmer, I don't think that's polarizing. I think people want us to think that's polarizing. And I think that's the challenge is like this social justice and everything. I mean, people are scared of land redistribution and all these things. Let's talk about democratization of our food system. Let's talk about decentralization of our food system first. And that's what I'm saying needs to be inclusive in the regenerative dialogue at the forefront. Yeah, I just, I just don't know that I actually agree. I mean, I think I, I feel my experience is having had a very similar perspective as the one you're articulating in the past and tried for some years to, to, to work from that perspective to create change. My recent experience leads me to believe in what I'm currently trying on to see if it works is really like placed, sourced, holistic, everyone negotiates and, I, and we don't impose. Like, like my belief is and my experience has been that the social economic conversations automatically come up and you don't need to pre presume we don't need to presume democratization and decentralization and impose that as a demand. That that is something that the stakeholders themselves will automatically talk about. And if you, and if you let them talk about it, oftentimes it's even the, the people in quotes of privilege who, who are able to bring it up if you can create the right container in which it's not a, it, you know, it's, You look at the, the food deserts and the projects, you know, you look at, the, the farmers around the country that are being exploited, how farmer suicides are at an all-time high. You look at people that are more affluent communities that want to fight this injustice and, and change the food system. There's a unifier there. We're all being screwed by the same people. And so it's about how you frame that conversation. It can actually break that divide and be inclusive. And it could be depolarizing. Rural communities are being oppressed. But, the but, same but in your statement, you said city. the same people. It's like there's still in that statement, there's a, there's a group who is, there's, in that statement, there's always a group whose fault it is. Well, uh, and, you, and what I'm saying, and what I'm <laughs> saying is, what I'm saying is, it, if, it, it can't be simultaneously true it can't, in my mind, be simultaneously true that the, the oppressive nature of agriculture 
is inherent to civilization, while at the same time that there's a group of people whose fault it is. I think that the oppressive nature of agriculture isn't inherent to civilization. It's inherent to social stratification and hierarchy within society. Like when we have those systems, we're going to get that. Hierarchy is the driver of I guess what's our de definition of civilization? In my mind, civilization is stratified hierarchical society that relies right. on agriculture and complex economies in order to create said hierarchies and that's civilization and then there's other forms of social organization but that that is sort of like what civilization is sure and i and i mean i i feel that it if we take a step back and look at cargill dupont you know and monsanto of course with them um we look at the big agricultural corporations do you think that the regenerative argument is scaring them? Or do you not. not think that Monsanto's already branding with regenerative? They're definitely already branding with regenerative. Of course, because it's void of the social element, because they can position themselves as precision agriculture, as sustainable. They can advance an organic model and still make money. You say, we help farmers to use less with our GMOs, they all what they don't want is talks about equity sharing. They don't want talks about democratization and decentralization. That's my point. How are you going to make the change without them? Oh, so you want to work with these corporations to make the change? They have to be included. They have to be part of the equation. They're part of the. They're part of society. I want to make them irrelevant. I, I, I want. I want a world I, where companies that patent life is irrelevant and those, they don't exist anymore. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I want a world where, where... Totally. But you're not going to get there by fighting them because they'll win. We had a little, we had a little, uh, uh, my internet kind of went yeah. out there. I mean, this is the heart of it. This is the heart of the strategic difference is that, yes, we have to, yes, I want those companies to be irrelevant. And my judgment is the only way to make them irrelevant is, is, is to take the much harder path of maintaining integrity while sitting at the table with them. I, 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 I want you to be careful about there with the terms of maintaining integrity, because you say that people that aren't doing that in the way that you view aren't maintaining integrity. And so I think integrity is different for other people. You know, there's people that that don't want to sit at the table with them and create own systems and they're still maintaining integrity. Uh, I don't think, and I don't think the way that I phrased, I mean, I hear that that you felt defensive about that, but I don't think that's what I was saying. I think that the onus is on, I mean, to be frank, I don't think, I, I don't think we can just create a system without those people. I think if we begin to adopt localized systems. And of course, we're not gonna have a global food system that's 100% localized. But if we support localized economies, if we support agroecological farming and reduce our needs on 
hybrid GMO seeds to industrial petrochemicals, what we're doing is disempowering those corporations. Totally. What we're doing is decentralizing. And I'm not talking about, boom, all of a sudden we have a decentralized food system. I'm saying we have to work with the alternative and prop that up and support that to create an economy of scale that doesn't exist within intellectual property rights and patenting of life within corporate control because these food systems are not about protecting the bottom billion. They're about to protecting their bottom line. They're, it's not about democratizing food system. It's about centralizing control. And uh, so totally. I, I that we have to but, like, but you're missing the, you're, you're missing my point, which I, that's all good and it should happen. But all of that can happen without being adversarial. Sure. Uh, it is by nature, it's yeah. by nature, like indirectly threatening business hegemony. But it, but, but it can be done in a much more powerful and subversive transformative way if you allow and you understand the strategic power of, you know, and I shouldn't be publishing this. We should be having this as a private conversation, but whatever, everybody can hear it. This is good. Transparency is great. But you, like, like if Monsanto actually thinks that they're gonna get a regenerative brand halo without engaging with the whole reality that includes people, I welcome their ignorance because it's never gonna happen. Because it can't, because it's intrinsic to the nature of what's going to take place that they're going to have to engage with a process of regeneration and decentralization that re-empowers farmers and transforms society. There's no way around it. And no, so, I, so if I, you I, think in the short term, if, you, if you're scared in the short term, I hear that, but I don't think it's, I, like, like, I don't think we can, I don't think we can make them obsolete by fighting them. That's what I'm saying. No, I think we can, make them obsolete by creating a model that exists without them, which makes them obsolete. And I don't think it has to be adversarial. I think it has to be opposite to what they're doing. And I think that's what we're, the movement is about, is creating systems that don't, don't, that don't create dependencies on their products or their control. Uh, I'm That's fine. But everything, every way that you're framing it is at, you know, every, you're framing it as an adversarial they. I mean, the reason that I started poking at yeah. that moment was your, your, the language and the assumptions are that there's like, in us versus them, which I think is a, which I frankly, I think is an outdated model of reality. Like that's what I'm trying to say is there's a, if you say that there's certain things intrinsic to our society, the fabric of our society, then that means that both sides in quotes of this battle in quotes between oppressor and oppressed are complicit in the same sort of like set of actually fundamental exploitative dynamics with the earth and with each other. Mm. And that if you're, if you're going to transform that whole set of things, you have to have a higher order approach to transform it. It's like the, the, 
the transformation can't take place within that polarity. It has to be something that pulls both of those two things together and creates a creates something new. And and if you're doing that, then you have to include the the Monsantos of the world in your calculus. You can't just exclude them because otherwise they'll fight you and you'll be stuck in the same polarity and you'll be stuck in the same cycle. And but then if you include them, what about them getting stronger? And what about I just don't think that's the that like they sh they're not going to get stronger. They're going to get healthier. They're going to transform so that they're no longer oppressive. They're going to be fundamentally. You won't be able to tell that they were. Like there has to be a path towards reconciliation, and there has to be a path towards transformation. There has to be on an individual basis. I think there is. You know, that's I just right. don't think in these corporations that there is. I mean. But 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 your assumption of that your assumption that Monsanto is like somehow some evil, some some evil thing is like, the challenge I have with that is that every individual within Monsanto, within their worldview, thinks that they're doing something for the betterment Absolutely. of society. And I, I agree with that, and that's they why think, they yeah. think that private property is the foundation of a free society, and they think that like markets are the foundation of liberty and they think that innovating and transforming genes and and agriculture through science is the foundation for progress and feeding all of the people everywhere mm -hmm. and so so they have the same basic drivers of wanting to take care of the world and their neighbors and and people that everyone has and so when we like and i'm not saying we should just be all hand wavy and avoid the 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 social and ecological reality that actually gets created by those good intentions but i am saying that we have to include them at the table for this transformation to really take place fully and and whether or not that's monsanto or the people within Monsanto or whatever, that's like a tactical conversation. I'm not sure we're at the level of actually being able to make, make a good design analysis about that. I don't, I'm not opining about that, but yeah. I think the, I think what's, I mean, this is, I mean, this is brilliant because what the only disagreement is whether we can make change within the system or outside the system. And that's where this conversation started. I'm saying both. We have to do both. And that's where we're at right now. And, I, and, you know, I tend to come from the point view that the powers and be are not going to let real systemic change happen. And, and I see that, I mean, you read winners take all, I mean, you, I mean, you read the divide, you look at like the literature and, and the history, it's like, these people are invested in protecting their interest. And, and so I want to not bring out the guillotine, but I want to create alternative models that exist where they're irrelevant. And they're obsolete, and that's and that's where I'm focused in. And and we work with farmers all over the world to you know because nobody even knows what a grown culture is on this podcast right now. So I'll share that. Like we work with farmers all over the world to support ingenuity. I mean, and these the these farmers are faced with unimaginable adversity, social, economic. They're dealing with climate change that's more harsh than what we're dealing with in temperate environments or whatnot, um, this is major adversity. And what do they cultivate is unbridled ingenuity. 
and they, and they create these solutions all over the world that are changing our food system. And that solution is not just how do I deal with this pest management or how do I build soil, but it's how do I deal with domestic violence or a middleman that hasn't paid me? How do I get my kids to school? How do we create democratic processes to be involved in government and to vote and to... Difference between the ecological world and the social world, they're one and the same. They're interwoven. Did we lose each other? I lost you for just a second. I lost you for just a second. Right before you said the 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 ecological and social world are interwoven, there was like a word, a couple words that I lost. I'm saying for these communities, there's no difference between the ecological and the social. It's the same. When you look at biodiverse hotspots of the world, and you look at like lingual hotspots of the world, which is you know shows cultural diversity, you see their overlap. You know, without cultural diversity, we don't have biological diversity and vice versa. These at that epicenter and at that intersection is hotspots of ingenuity all around the world where peasants and agrarians and indigenous are producing the world's food. And, and so what a growing culture does is work to support grassroots groups, organizing and incubating innovation, solutions. Those are both social and ecological, they're solutions. The carbon solution is just as important as the participatory governance solution. And that's what I'm saying, right? There's no division there. Then we support groups, farmer groups, indigenous groups to share that knowledge spreading across the world. We advocate for those solutions because those are disruptive technologies. Those are disruptive technologies. And when you have a world where Academia, or let's step back. When you have a world where we think innovation comes from people that look like you and I, Gregory, they think innovation is happening in Silicon Valley or Wall Street or Cornell or Iowa State. All over the world, these farmers are producing in unbelievable, like inventive ways, but they're not getting recognized. And I'll give you, I'll give you two just brief, quick examples of this kind of of, of this brilliance, which is what I spend my life advocating for. You know, and and I want to tell you, I'm advocating for the inclusivity of these farmers and what they care about, right? I'm not advocating for soil carbon or for social justice. I'm advocating for these peasant growers to have a say in shaping the food system. That's what I care about deep down, right? Mm -hmm. And so last year in Germany, they developed a technique to sex an egg. They, I mean, believe it or not, they didn't know how to determine the sex and gender of an egg before it was hatched. So what happens in Germany alone, 45 million male chicks a year are culled because they're born into hatcheries. There's no need for them. If they knew they were male, they would sell them as eggs. So this is major waste within our food system. So they developed this technique, a syringe goes in, extracts the DNA, marks it, calculates the DNA, and then they can able to tell, right? It's extractive industrial model that costs a lot. One of our partner organizations, ProNova, who's been working with participatory develop innovation since 2011, has a woman, you can all go on YouTube, sex determination, Kenya, Google it. This is open source, public knowledge. This woman developed a technique to determine the sex of an egg. They brought in researchers, it's 90% effective. That's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And all she does is map the curve. She maps the curve of the egg. This is the brilliance. But then 
that knowledge and inventions become whitewashed as we celebrate these white German scientists and this industrial ag model, which only centralizes power versus a model that democratizes power. Now, I'm gonna give you one more example of an innovation that I think has unbelievable scale, but also helps point the story that, and, 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 and advocate for the argument that I'm providing for you. Pig farming, well, you've been into a, a, a industrial pig house, right? I've never visited an industrial pig house, no. Or have you been into like even a non-industrial pig house, like a indoor pig house? I've definitely, I've definitely been in plenty of different pig operations, mostly very small. Yeah. So you know that pigs, pig stench is like the stench you, that's worse than cow stench. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you, you can't get rid of it either. <laughs> yeah. No. Pig, is, it's, it's a major odor issue. Um, so pigs conventionally are raised on concrete, right? Indoors in pig houses with a pretty high stocking density. Um, the floors are sanitized. They're disinfected. They're sprayed with water and bleach, right? And the runoff becomes a pollutant. And the runoff is the pig waste, which is in a regenerative or permaculture system would be seen as a nutrient. Now it's concentrated and turned into a pollutant, right? Um, Unbelievable odor, disease, everything. So in Vietnam, from farmers that we worked with had developed a technique. And I come visit this farmer. This farmer's wearing a suit, polished up. It's unbelievable. I'm like, wow, this farmer. I've been hearing about this farmer for months when I was living in Vietnam. It took me a long time to find this farmer. And so finally, I was thinking that this was going to be some genius farmer of folklore that I was thinking... And he was, but he didn't look like it. He was wearing a suit because he was so excited that I was coming to see his farm. It had a conventional pig house for Vietnam standards, maybe not as big as Iowa, North Carolina, or Canada, or China, but this was pretty good size, conventional looking on the outside, right? He had an organic farm all surrounding it, but there was this big pig house with probably 300 pigs in it. I don't know. As soon as we walk into the house, he puts his hand on my chest, he stops, he goes, smell that? And I say, smell what? And he goes, exactly. I said, holy shit. Yeah. So we walk down the aisle, on both sides, pig pants. He jumps over with his suit and his polished shoes and he gets into the pig pen and I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing? You know, I went to college and I worked in a pig house in college. And, and so I, I couldn't believe it. He sticks his hands into the medium and holds it up and he smells it. He goes, come smell it. So I jump over and I smell it. And I, I said, it smells sweet. He goes, I haven't changed that bedding in six years. In six years, he hasn't changed that bedding. What he did was take byproduct from industries, straw from the rice production, bamboo dust, wood chips and sawdust. He inoculated it with lactobacillus, microorganisms and EM or or indigenous microorganism like the Korean method, right? Dr. Cho, um, he inoculated it with these microorganisms. He cultivated them from around his farm himself by burying rice. And then he had the, the medium was about 70 centimeters high. He inoculated it by spraying all this microorganisms and this yeast and sugars. And then he brought the pigs in. The urine was immediately broken down and, the feces, every other day, the farmer would come in and turn them. There was no odor, no flies, no rats. 
no disease. Why disinfect when you can co-infect? Create competition and collaboration, right? Yeah, it's, it's great. This zero runoff from day one. Zero runoff, zero pollution. Think about all the low-income communities around North Carolina, mostly predominantly African-American, who live around these pork farms that can't even sell their house anymore because nobody would buy them because the stench is so bad. Yeah. Imagine this, this model can be adopted into conventional models. You could do it in an indoor pig house, right? But the big thing is what we started doing with these farmers is saying, every half a year or a year, let's harvest 75% of that medium and sell it as activated compost. You're creating another market. It's economic, right? And then you bring 75% and you use the bottom 25% that you save as a starter kit to inoculate it. And you're keeping that culture alive. Because this farmer was like, I don't grow pigs, I grow microorganisms. That's the beauty, that's an intervention, right? That's not gonna happen from Cornell or, or, or Iowa State. That's gonna happen, that's a true disruptive technology and it's gonna happen in these areas that we're not recognizing as innovators and solution generators. This is what I'm talking about, it's not charity, it's parody. We treat the Global South peasant farmers as beneficiaries of aid, not active innovators. We need to change that right away. We yeah. need that built in to the model that we're working in. The alternative needs to be inclusive. It doesn't need to vilify, it doesn't need to objectify or dehumanize it, but it needs to recognize that the centralized powers aren't, isn't what we want. We want to decentralize our food system. And we need that broken in to the dialogue that we're creating. We're looking to support farmers and to produce and to support people in low income areas with no food access. We're working to support people to grow food because we trust people, not corporations to grow the food. Like this is all it is. I mean, and that doesn't mean that healthy businesses aren't incubated. A lot of our workshops have kickstarted, you know, farmers to then export coffee here or export. We're not saying don't export or don't, you know, only localize. No, you have autonomy. You have control. Create the model that serves you, your culture, and your soil. Yep. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's super important, everything you're saying. And those stories of how people – um, brilliantly innovate when given the chance are just super exciting and inspiring. And, you know, I've seen some similar, similar circumstances. And I think that sort of, you know, farmer sort of peer innovation network um, and, and peer, peer to peer markets and, the, the whole layer, I, I mean, I, I strongly agree. I'm in heated agreement that decentralization and a focus on sort of in, empowering the edges, like pushing power out to the edges is, is essential. It, it, like there is no way around that. And it, and it also has the added benefit of, you know, sort of transforming a lot of the social dynamics that we, we spent a lot of this call talking about, because if a, you know, that Vietnamese farmer, as you're saying, has his own cultural context and his own familial and social responsibilities. And if he's deeply empowered to build a business and a vocation and a, an agro ecosystem that's representative of his place and his family and his society, 
uh, without it sort of being perverted by strange disembodied exterior economic forces, you know, um, he will do a brilliant job of taking care of all of the things that he needs to take care of. And that's like one of the most beautiful things I think about human nature actually, is that humans when not otherwise perverted are great stewards and great community members and building vocations around that kind of stewardship is, yeah, it's beautiful work. And I'm so glad that you're doing it. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and when we're doing these workshops to incubate innovation, this is all capacity and agency building. Those workshops that are creating those collaborative structures, right? Um, and that peer to peer learning, that's generating capacity because there's no environmental resilience without communal resilience, right? Like that's the strive, right? The, the community has to constantly be evolving and adaptive and as diverse as the farm they're sowing. This is so important. And so when we're doing these workshops, there's no vilifying. There's no, you know, there's no um, fighting the corporation. It's just creating, focusing on the positive and creating real capacity for success. Did I lose you? I'm still here. I just shut off video because I, I, I kept getting a little bit, uh, yeah, just the, the bandwidth. For whatever reason, I think my internet is not doing so great. But um, so, so, so what I'm getting from you, Lauren, is just like this really beautiful image, I think for our listeners, of what it looks like to essentially f focus instead of sort of like generally the aid uh, aid industrial complex and the way that you know sort of our our sort of agronomic um, and as you've said a couple of times sort of neo-colonial um, and you know we could say neoliberal economic order functions is you sort of have these um, experts, these academic experts, and they try to push out their innovations out to sort of um, subservient farmers who are consuming that information and then just sort of like cogs in a big wheel that produces food in a, in a particular templated way that, that, as we know, has generated a huge amount of externalized environmental and social costs, degradation, degeneration, and, and, and pollution. And what you're offering people is sort of a glimpse into a, a, a model in which that's been transformed. And instead, you're looking and your organization and, and your network, your clients and, you know, um, supporters are looking for the, the farmers themselves, the land stewards, to be the ones who are, um, where innovation is being sourced from and where the, what they produce, both the food and the, the other sort of multi-capital assets, intelligence, experience, you know, um, ecological health, is th they're getting to sort of define that and offer that and, and kind of have a mirror held up to them and where they're venerated and they understand their vital role in society. Is that kind of an accurate yeah. summary? Yeah, I mean, I think that is accurate and there's, there's something that happened to me that, that I thought was 
you know, pleasantly um, illuminating, which is, you know, um, I don't know, four or five years ago, I was asked to do a lecture at Columbia University. And I was presenting on our process of innovation development, participatory innovation development. I was talking about solutions and how communities have um, need to be at the helm and, and shape their own food systems for themselves. Um, my sister, who uh, is extreme trauma uh, practitioner and expert, um, she leads and designs therapeutic programs at refugee camps across the world. Uh, she consults with, you know, brought it in for to lecture at Homeland and the Pentagon. Um, she's, she leads a department uh, that's connected to Harvard um, in Boston. And so she came to listen to my presentation. She had never seen me talk about my presentation before. And at the end of the presentation, she got to me and she said, that's so crazy. When I'm dealing with trauma in these communities, in these refugee communities, dealing with people that have lost their legs to landmines or watched their families get murdered or raped and, and the ex most extreme situations. She says, we have the exact same approach. It's about mm -hmm. capacity building. It's about igniting agency, right? Um, and that was so unbelievably revealing to me that my sister and I are actually doing the same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, the same work, yeah. And... And so, you know, as, I, as we're talking about this, and, and it's like, it's interesting because we, we spent the, the first part of this call on, on this dialogue about systemic change and uh, us ourselves, we're, we're drawing like lines in the sand or, 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 or creating some kind of accidental or intended, but like polarizing kind of um, sides to an argument. What, what, I, what I realized is that like, when you go onto a grown culture's website, you, you don't see anything about Monsanto. You don't see anything about industrial ag. You see something about, you see everything about farmers' rights, mm -hmm. about capacity building, about, about people around the world having solutions and working together. And you see case studies for those solutions and you see language around that. There is no negative tone. And we made that decision to stay not negative. And I think the solution doesn't have to vilify or to create it. Uh, enemies, but we do need to exist outside of the industrial model to create the solution. And I really think that these farmers all around the world, when they're creating these models, it's, it's an act of self-liberation. They're pulling themselves from the industrial food system that has oppressed them, right? And they're existing and taking autonomy over their own agricultural models and that's so important and part of what the food movement needs to do is to build in a vocabulary for that healthy populism for that healthy understanding of of individual and collective empowerment yeah i mean amen i i guess i i i continue to see i love the sort of like the focus on um, capacity and agency. I mean, I think that resonates very strongly with, you know, it, it, the essence of what I feel like we're doing at Region Network, which is, you know, essentially creating a decentralized inf economic infrastructure to, to facilitate, you know, governance of an economic system that takes into consideration the all of the forms of value that are generated by 
by good land stewardship instead of just just sort of and and to me what i like what i when i hear you talking i sort of like filter it through my own lens and my own sort of perspectives and frameworks and and what i hear is like the fundamental shift that needs to take place is from this sort of like mechanistic industrial perspective in which it's even possible to exploit you know it's even possible to exploit here where people advantageous to exploit well and then it comes out as economic economically advantageous and like my whole my whole uh crusade right now is to is to transform that so that it is no longer economically advantageous to exploit exploit workers exploit ecosystems exploit that 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 economic that we can recalibrate the sort of value flows of reciprocity mm-hmm. and mutualism and exchange and stores of value to be a more accurate representation of living health that that sort of my perception is that everything that you're saying resonates in in the way that if you think of farmers and you venerate them as whole living community members nested in a in a in a community of place which includes other humans and you know the greater than human world and you think about them as whole beings and you really do that and you really consider them that way it becomes impossible to to ethically make exploitative decisions and that's what we need to do yeah and that's where i'm that's you know sort of like the foundation of sort of my my perhaps i mean and probably a lot of my listeners are like what what are you talking about, Gregory? Like, fuck Monsanto. We should just, you know, whatever. And sort of maybe my provocation here, being a little bit of a provocateur, is to say, you know, I, I sort of believe that at the end of the day, all of society, or at least a critical mass of society, needs to go through a process where our fundamental paradigm shifts from, you know, and this is sort of, you know, maybe a little bit hand wavy or cliche, but shifts from sort of this mechanistic exploitative to a living regenerative perspective and the ethics and the 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 arithmetic of reciprocity and the ways that the the value stream and producer web and societal roles all have to shift with the paradigm and i think what you're talking about is a harbinger of that you know reality it's like preparing the soil and showing people it's already possible now people can you know create networks of solidarity and you know an economy of solidarity now there is nothing in the way besides our own sort of like mental state of this there's no technological restraints here Mm -hmm. in order to, to to transform all of the innovation and tools exists latent as as you're sort of inviting us to consider in the amazing genius network of farmers all over the world it's all there it just we or just the potential to, is there yeah the potential is there and all the food exists to feed all of us and more and all of the all of these things are latent what what is demanded of us is to you know yeah say yes and engage in the transformation essentially yeah the world's most renewable resource is human collaboration man yeah. um and i mean and this is really important 
to me. And this is, and, but, but it's like, we need to recognize these individuals, the role they play, the system that they're caught in, and the potential for change that comes from them. And that's about agency building. And that takes that, that mixture of social and economic lens, right? And so our workshops are 100% collaborative because the revolution might not be televised, but it will be open source, right? And like everything is open source because we build off of each other's knowledge. Farmers do not adopt, they adapt. Right. So when one farmer learns about that pig process and a and that farmer, she then implements it on her farm. What happens is she's building upon that innovation. Yeah. Right. Life itself. It's evolution. It's how it's how it all works. And this is how we create the domino effect of real systemic change is by reigniting our own agency and authority and our autonomy over ourselves and our operating systems. And and what I strongly believe is that our relationship with the environment is a reflection of our relationship within society, that we cannot create a, you know, an environmentally regenerative or a sustainable future as long as we still have injustice and patriarchy baked within our society. So we're both looking for the same thing. You know, everybody- well, I, I'm just flip it on the, on the head though. It's sort of like a yes and. I think they're so, in, it's like the two sides of the same coin. Yes. Yes. Yeah, sure. I, I I think so. But I, I do think that can we agree that as long as there's exploitation, we, we're not going to have sustainability. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't really use the term sustainability oh, okay. so much um, or, or, I, or, or that is to say I do use it. I just have a specific definition of it. But yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I think what I hear you say is, you know, without um, transforming our social relations, we can't transform our relationships with our biosphere, our ecology. How, how we engage with nature is a reflection of how we treat each other, you know? And vice versa. I, I guess that's all I'm trying to say is they're yeah. part of it. There's, there's like a, a non-dual thing there, which is sure. that, that, you know, our, our exploitation of because humans are nature sure it's the separation of ourselves which is you know a lot of these communalistic and polyamorous societies were saw themselves as part of nature right um and, and when we see ourselves as part of nature it it transforms how we treat each other and it transforms how we uh you know treat the world absolutely so, well I, I mean I mean, there's a bunch of, I actually was kind of hoping to get to some, you know, maybe to be continued some, pra I, I would like to know more about if and how region network and a growing culture might, you know, meaningfully collaborate to, to accelerate the transformation, um, mutual regeneration that, that's needed and, and underway. Um, so maybe we can, you know, either do that offline or, or in another podcast if it makes sense but i'm so grateful for your time lauren i've had a great conversation i hope i hope our sort of like semantic uh dialogue was useful as useful for other people as it seemed to be enjoyable for us <laughs> yeah i i absolutely loved it i mean it's like we we should have been doing this over a beer you know yeah, years totally ago. um totally Years ago, 
and everybody that knows us has always been pushing, you know. Um, and so I, I want to say that I, I, I thank you so much for, for the opportunity. Um, thank you so much for engaging and entertaining my, my, my craziness and, uh, um, and for challenging me. It's really refreshing and, and, and helpful. Um, I also do want to say how much I respect um, the network that you're a part of um, and Tara Generis and Genesis and, um, and the regeneration folks. I mean, I'm a big fan of all of them. Um, and so I, I think we, I think we can do this. I think we can make a change. And I, I don't, I hope from this conversation, we all get a takeaway of not getting too down into the weeds about drawing lines where we're different and finding ways to work together, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately most of the difference is, is either semantic or useful tensions that don't necessarily have answers, but serve to be powerful questions to sort of like to deeply consider, you know, where, where it's, 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 it, it, there is not a right or wrong. There's a tension that exists that we have to hold in how we're approaching this work. So I really respect your work in the world. Um, yeah, thank you for hopping on. I'm, I've got to hop straight into another meeting here, unfortunately. So I think we'll sort of wrap up with that. And um, yeah, you want to just share a quick note to, to our listeners about where they can find out more about uh, a growing culture and your work? Growingculture.org. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lauren. Yeah, man. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it. Have a great day, man. You too. Thank you.